You are listening to Aim for the Bushes. I am your podcast person, Pavlo, also known as JPav, also known as Pav, also known as Pavi. And with me today is another podcast person, Christian. Hello. Hello once again. Now, you may notice that I did not say Maggie the Mags is with us. That is because things are slightly different now due to the certain coronavirus so we are uh, doing things a little bit differently. So if the sound is a bit different from previous episodes, it's because we have a different setup for the time being until we can go back to our in-person recordings. We're doing this over the internet. So if anything sounds off, that's that's the reason why. So Christian, how you been? You been all right? I have been. I've been doing... I'm well, and I've been doing okay. Thanks for asking. How uh, have you been doing? Oh, I'm good. I'm good now. <laughs> okay. <laughs> okay. So just before we get into t- today's topic, which will be good, bad films. So all those, you know, films like The Room, Troll 2, stuff like that, those films that are so bad that they're good, that's what we're going to be talking about. We're going to be looking at why or how... How do they work? Why are they good? Why are they funny? Why why do people enjoy them? Why do we enjoy them? But just before we get into that, uh, just as our my I guess our uh, non legal legal disclaimer is that these are just our opinions that we are espousing. So you can disagree with us. It's preferable if you agree with us, but you know you can disagree. You know that's that's a perfectly fine thing to do. Okay, so good bad film. So. I don't know. I don't, I don't know how you want to start. I don't know if you want to start. Um, or if I actually, start. Here's, here's one thing that I, I actually would like to start with. Yeah, yeah, go I ahead. Think, I think it's important to shout these people out. Um, and those are the good folks at Red Letter Media on oh. YouTube. Oh, yeah, yeah. I was definitely, I was going to get to them, but yeah. Yeah, yeah, we can start off with them. Yeah, for sure. I would, I would definitely want to shout them out, um, bring love to their channel. Uh, because in in many ways uh, they've brought the sort of so so bad they're good movies, you know they've made them accessible and available to so many people mm-hmm. uh, through their wonderful series called uh, Best of the Worst. Mm-hmm. Um, if you're not familiar with them, um, so the Red Letter Media uh, people I think are most known for their really really long and detailed quote-unquote plinket reviews yeah uh, the most famous of which are the star wars prequels so that's basically in a nutshell that's what if a buffalo bill type serial killer reviewed uh in a very very nitty-gritty detailed uh comprehensive fashion the star wars prequels uh and if that is not intriguing to you uh then um, I'm sorry, I can't, I can't help you because it, uh, it is incredible. It's worth a watch. Yeah, for sure. Uh, That's but, one. Sorry, I'm just gonna jump in there. That's yeah. like kind of one of the first things that brought them to like acclaim. Because mm-hmm. mm-hmm. I remember, I think that's the first video that I saw of them. Like back yes. when the first one came out, it was. Uh, you look this up on YouTube. I'll probably put a link to it in the show notes there. Well, probably just through their channel, and you can go listen to it or watch it. Uh, yeah, I remember there was a thing like on Twitter or a message board. I can't remember what it was. It was like, oh, this is like you have to see like this, uh, you know, analysis of like the prequels. They like explain like perfectly. This was for the Phantom Menace, the first one. Yeah. Uh, they explain perfectly why the sequels or prequels don't work. And, and that kind of like brought them like 
uh, acclaim. And so I'd watch the Plinkett reviews for the, the Star Wars prequels. And then they did like Star Trek, all the Star mm-hmm. Trek films, like um, the original uh, film series. Uh, yeah, that's, that's what brought me to them. And then I just kept watching and they did like more reviews and stuff. So going. Exactly. Yeah. So that so I would definitely go check them out. Check out their series. Also, Best of the Worst. It's a really good introduction into movies that are so bad they're good. Because I think that for previous generations, so older generations than yours and mine, Mystery Science Theater was the yeah. in on that kind of like the joy that one could have watching a B movie. Um, that wasn't, you know, good in the uh, sort of conventional sense, but that you could actually get a lot of entertainment value from being in a room with a bunch of your friends watching a terrible movie, uh, you know, obviously a terrible low-budget movie, especially in the case of Mystery Science Theater, and just riffing off of the commentary and having a great time. A great time. Yeah, yeah, for sure. That's one of the things that, at least for me, because I guess we'll kind of get into like what makes them enjoyable. Yeah. Uh, one of them, one of the ways is like the actual viewing experience. So I, I don't know if this is like the kind of film or these kind of films are something you'd watch on your own by yourself. Like to yeah. me, that's not like so appealing. Like, uh, for example, one of the films, I guess, that you that could fall in this category, at least I think so, is like Rocky Horror Picture Show. Right. I, I watched that uh, initially just kind of like in a living room and just with like a few people and like we just like watched it just like as is and I was just kind of like, okay, this is because um, <laughs> prior prior to actually watching the film, I, I just knew like two songs like Sweet Transvestite and uh, Time Warp. Yeah. And I was like, oh, okay. And then I watched the film, like, this is a fucking shitty film. <laughs> like, I don't yeah. understand what the big deal is. And then, like, a few years ago, I went at the screenings that they do here in Montreal every Halloween. Yeah. Which then, are huge. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because, like, it's a big, like, touring film, right? Like, it plays, yeah. like, in cities all over the world in theaters. And that viewing experience was, like, much more enjoyable I kind of like I understood. I'm like, oh, okay. Now I see like the appeal. It was like the 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 audience interaction. It was like the yeah. environment, the atmosphere that like made it interesting or fun like to watch because everyone like there's these little things. If you've never been to Rocky Horror, like certain things that happen in the film that people in the audience will react to. They'll like throw stuff. So it's like it makes it more interactive. It makes it more enjoyable. Yeah. So it's like in that kind of setting, like a lot of these films are good. Like you have to watch, you don't necessarily have to go to a theater to watch them, but they're best viewed or what makes them work is like, it's kind of like what you're saying with Mystery Science Theater 3000, except you make your own commentary. It's like you watch it with people and it's kind of like a more like fun interactive thing because everyone's like, uh, you know, uh, you know, uh, sending, saying things out or like, you know, criticizing what's going on because a lot of it is like really terrible like acting terrible lines of dialogue yeah. terrible like direction like terrible Actually, editing you know what you know what it's making me think of What's is that? um because my perspective usually um so i for those of you of course you know so just a little bit of context here i host 
uh, movie nights that are like best of the worst themed. And we usually watch two movies. Yeah. And then at the end of the night, we decide which one we liked most. Um, and during those screenings, I've usually seen both movies, right? Either because I want to be sure that they have the potential to be that kind of a crowd pleasing film. Mm-hmm. And also just to make sure that the film, because these actual films aren't readily available so that the file that I have or the DVD that I have uh, or the Blu-ray that I have is actually worth, you know, it's actually, you know, uh, in good condition yeah. um, is, is actually watchable. Um, and it's, it's a similar, I think there is an, an important element of schadenfreude, you know, mm-hmm. which is the German word for taking pleasure in the, you know, the displeasure of others, the yeah. pain of others. Yeah. It's it's the same reason why I think some people like, you know, like the most people who watched a, a video like Two Girls, One Cup, for example, <laughs> really, really, uh, you know, deep cut. But it was, usually they were, they were said, oh, someone came to them and said, you have to watch this. Yeah. And then that person watched them watch <laughs> it, right? Yeah. And there's that reaction, the, the, the dawning of, oh, my God, what is this? What's happening? Yeah. Why are these people doing this? Why is this so weird? Um, I think there's there's a lot of enjoyment to be had, and I yeah. think that's why these films in particular are rewatchable, yeah. right? Because with most with most terrible movies, you watch them once and then you hope to God to never see them again, right? Uh, whereas movies that are so bad they're good, their rewatchability comes from basically exposing other people to them yeah, yeah, and yeah. enjoying, you know, like, you know, <laughs> seeing how they really, react. Yeah. Really, 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 you know, uh, like chewing and, 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 and enjoying that, that, that reaction, that first experience. Yeah, no, for sure. That is definitely like part of it. Uh, cause you know, you're going to see like, Ooh, do they like it? Do they not like it? And then especially at some of the crazy stuff or some of it is just like, especially like if it's like a shitty like horror film, just yeah. like the different like kills or you're going to get gore. You yeah. Know, just to like see those like moments that are just so bizarre. Yeah. That's so unexpected. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. I think, I think a really good example of that is, um, um, I think he, he, the director's name was Frank Lennonhotter. I mean, I'm going to look that up. Yeah, um, he was a, he was a director who mostly worked in the eighties and nineties. Um, and yeah, that's right. Frank Hennenlotter. There we go. Frank Lennonhotter, Hennenlotter. Sorry about that. And he did one of my, he's, he's known for doing these really kind of transgressive um, type B movies, but that are always effective yeah, one way or another. And perhaps one of the most successful screenings that I've ever had, and it was a movie where watching it on my own, I knew right away that this was something special, um, was a film called Brain Damage, uh, which, uh, if I remember correctly, was released in 1988. And uh, the story of Brain Damage is really simple. There's this blue kind of slug creature oh, oh yeah, yeah yeah i remember that called called the aylmer uh <laughs> who uh crawls around and then eventually attaches himself to your spine and then injects this kind of blue juice uh which makes you euphoric and hallucinate 
uh, and whatnot. And of course, what's super fun is this is a slimy blue puppet that's being, you know, mechanically operated. Um, and they found, I, I think, the best voice actor to oh, voice yeah. that role because it sort of slithers around and goes, Hi, Brian. How are you? Would you like some of my juice? Um, so just that in and of itself is hilarious. But there's this scene where uh, the main character, who is at this point, for all intents and purposes, tripping balls off of the Aylmer's blue juice. And he's at this club, this party. And then there's uh, this woman there. And then she picks him up. She brings him outside. And she's about to give him fellatio when <laughs> Aylmer is in his pants and then jumps out of his of the like zip crotch zip, uh, and then into her mouth and basically eats her brain through her mouth. And this is of course like a slug is a very phallic shape. And this is a this is a scene that during the filming of the movie, some of the crew were like, "Fuck this! I'm not doing this movie. This is way <laughs> too weird." Yeah. Um, and then when you watch it for the first time, you're going, "No, they're not going to do this. They're not going to do this." And then they do it. And then when you watch it with other people, there's it's so outrageous and it's so bizarre and it's so um, you don't see it coming at all. And so when it happens and everyone bursts and there are gasps and screams and everybody's going like, oh, my God, what the fuck? Um, there's something so enjoyable about that. And that's that's exactly what you mean. Like some sometimes these movies, they have these moments that are real gems uh, throughout the entirety uh, throughout the entirety of the film and they really stick out and they go, Oh my God, this is, this is, uh, this is crossed a threshold of some kind. And I don't, I don't know where the line is anymore, but, uh, we're, we're well beyond it. <laughs> yeah. So that's, that is, that is part of what makes these, um, films interesting is like the experience. And then obviously being surprised by how terrible in terms of like the concept and then the actual execution, yeah. right? Because someone thought, like, just using that example there of the slug flying out of someone's pants and then going in the woman's mouth and then, you know, basically killing her from the inside. <laughs> like, someone thought of that, then thought that was a good idea, wrote it down, and then, yeah. you know, got someone to create the slug effect and then got someone, like, to film it and record the sound. And, right? So it's like this whole process. It's just kind of like, what? what? Who yeah. thought this was a good idea at some point? Uh, Pablo, you brought up, I think, like the best and most important part uh, about uh, bad movies uh, is that they are still movies. Mm -hmm. Like that's how why you have to under, like appreciate how special these are, because sometimes you see a movie and you're going, what is happening? Why is this happening? Why are these people doing this? Why are they speaking this way? <laughs> uh, and then you can peel back the layers that got you to this point. Yeah. Someone had to write this script. Yeah. Someone had to find money to finance it. Yeah. Uh, someone had to get a crew together, pay this crew, motivate this crew. Someone had to cast actors yeah. who read this script. <laughs> and then they got to the day, you know, hired special effects people, hired, um, you know, stunt people, yeah. hired what, whatever that, that specific scene called for and made this happen for this movie. Like you think of, the time, the energy, the resources required to make any kind of movie, good or bad. And it really does cement just how special 
movies that are so bad they're they're good are because there's you can imagine that throughout this long list of like cause and effect mm -hmm. that someone would go no no you <laughs> can't do this. this yeah yeah no you can't do this uh, i'm not giving you the money for this or there's no way we're gonna find someone to do this no this isn't gonna happen right mm -hmm. um and yet it does. They find a way, you know, the necessity is the mother of invention. And somehow these people make it work. And I, I find that super cool. I find that's like almost inspiring in a lot of ways. <laughs> no, definitely. Uh, kind of going from there. Yeah. Uh, in terms of, you know, how does this come together? Right. Someone has to come with an idea and, you know, write it down. And then, like, you know, as you said, you know, find money, find actors, find crew people, find stunt people, whatever it is, set builders, costuming, props, all that stuff that goes into it. But one of the things that I think that make these type of films work is that whoever is in charge. So usually a lot of them are um, kind of like vanity projects. Yeah. Right. So, so yeah, yeah. so a, a, a vanity project is, which are my favorite subgenre yeah. of of best of the worst movies, are when you you either start at the beginning credits or the end credits, you see that the executive producer, director, star, writer, and editor are the same person. Yeah. Like that. Usually, it's the trifecta: star, writer, director. Yeah. That's the holy trinity of bad movies. And if you see that, the best example of that, The Room. Yeah. Tommy Wiseau, director, star, actor, equals magic. Yeah. And that's a film that I actually saw for, like, I had seen clips um, on the internet of it because it was just, like, the delivery of the dialogue, just the dialogue itself, the actions yeah. that they're doing in the film, right? It's just so crazy. So I had seen clips of it, but that was one that I actually did see at uh, Cinema du Parc. So I did see it like yeah. in a the theater, the full, the, for the, yeah. um, I saw it like, uh, yeah, in a theater in its entirety. I only watched the film once, but that was it. So it was just like, it was one of those things where it's like, it can be enjoyable. Definitely. If you're watching it in a room full of people and you're making your commentary, mm. uh, but it was something different, just like the atmosphere of like seeing it there. Cause people had like, it was kind of like Rocky horror where like different things that come up on screen, people have like little actions that they do like in the football throwing scenes <laughs> people would get up people like brought like footballs they went to the front of the theater and started throwing the football around to each other and then when they do those like pans of the golden gate bridge yeah. right back and forth yeah. everyone would be like go go go, go. <laughs> you know? so it's like small small things like that or did they shout spoons i think they threw spoons or shouted spoon because a lot of the I don't know if you noticed, but the picture frames in the as yes. like the set pieces, yes. right? Like they were just bought like the the stock photo. Well, they bought the the frame and just left the stock photo that is just placed in there. And yeah. usually it was spoons. <laughs> yeah. So. But like, what were you saying? So what were you saying before that? You're talking your your you know, vanity projects. Yeah. And... So. It has to be like for me for these types of films to work is like they have to be like done in earnest. Yes. They have to be like sincere. So whether it yes. is the case where it's a vanity project and it's someone who's written, directed, and is starring in it and they believe that this is like their magnum opus, they believe this is going to be good, people are going to love it, it's going to be great. It can be that. It can also be uh, whoever the filmmakers are or the producers are 
uh, they don't have to necessarily star and write yeah uh, or enact in it oh sorry sorry write and direct it they could just it could be someone who's just a regular producer uh who acquired a script somehow and they think it's going to be like this great film yeah but they have or, to believe in it yes yeah, go ahead absolutely they have to believe in it even if it's just oh this is going to make money yeah yeah, yeah. like s- the intention has to be genuine yeah absolutely it's like you know it's it's I, in my opinion it's not a good bad movie unless it was sincere in its attempt to make a movie it's a little bit like you can't you know in the same way that you can't have tequila that was like tequila is only made in Mexico. Scotch is only made in Scotland. Yeah. And anything else is not Scotch and it's not tequila. I think that is exactly the case with bad movies. And if if I may, I would like yeah. to tell you why. Yeah, yeah. Go um, ahead. Because I, I think that intentionally bad movies, mm-hmm. right? Because I think what happens is there's a misunderstanding where if you're talking to someone and then you're going like, oh, well, you know, I really like watching bad movies. And then that person says, like, oh, me too. Like, I love the Sharknado movies. Those are so bad. Yeah. And I go, no, you've missed the point entirely of what makes a good, bad movie enjoyable, right? So it's like, it's the intention that defines and redeems these movies. You know, like Troll 2, like The Room, like Miami mm-hmm. Connection. Mm-hmm. Um, so the filmmakers and the people involved are committed to make the best movie they can. Yeah. Right. And so that's super important because it's only that like sometimes don't get me wrong. Sometimes like in the case of a Neil Breen movie or even Tommy Wiseau, delusion is an important aspect of it. Right. That these people are delusional. Yes, absolutely. There's no reason why they would think that this uh, could work. Uh, But the thing is, so even though in many respects, right, they fail sometimes they mm-hmm. fail so spectacularly that accidentally they make an entertaining movie, right? Yeah. And that's where the magic happens because some bad movies are just bad mm-hmm. because the filmmaking and acting is so inept that it's it's a boring movie to watch, right? Uh, and then sometimes it shows like you see this a lot with with B movies. Sometimes it shows that the movie is just a cash grab or a scam. Right. So immediately I think of the asylum movies because I think a lot of people will go, oh, yeah, like a lot of people, some people who, you know, are, are cinephiles will go like, oh, yeah, you know, like the asylum movies like I watch those. So for those of you who don't know. The Asylum is a movie company that exclusively makes ripoffs of mainstream movies. So if Transformers comes out, then they'll make Transmorphers, you know, for example, with yeah. a very similar box art and or, you know, like instead of Aliens versus Predator, it's uh, Aliens versus Hunter or something like that. And it's 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 a shitty version. It's a low budget version with with, you know, a terrible script. Yeah. Um, and terrible visual effects that's basically just there to capitalize on the fact that someone either may make the mistake of going, oh, this is a Transformers movie, and then buy it or rent it. Especially this was especially true during the video rental days. Yeah. Um, and then 
Uh, but the the thing is with these movies, or or again, like you know, during the VHS boom in the eighties and nineties, and everybody was making VHS tapes. Like some of them were just pure scams, you know. Um, so, but the thing is with these movies, everybody involved is in on the joke. Yeah, it's a joke. Everyone is going about it in a sort of half-hearted fashion because they know that they're not actually trying to make a good movie, and they know they're not trying to make great art. Yeah, right. So it, it never comes close to what a bad movie is. I think what it comes close to is bad satire. And I think it's the worst kind of satire because I think a movie is like Sharknado and a Sharknado movie is a satire of a bad B movie. Yeah. Right. And you're going like, this is, this is a layer of, you know, like meta filmmaking um, that gets boring because it's the same joke. Yeah. all over again yeah. you know over and over again and you sort of you get the gist with the sharknado movies or i recently watched a movie that was recommended to me called the Velocipastor, um <laughs> which is about like a, a, young... a raptor that's like a priest or something <laughs> it, 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 cl- close it's a pastor that <laughs> transforms into a velociraptor and kills people okay um and he falls in love with a hooker and blah 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 but this movie, at first, when we started watching it, uh, we thought it was funny because there was a lot of gags and there was a lot of bad VFX. And then that's where it becomes clear that this was played for comedy, that this was played as satire. But the bit gets old, mm-hmm. right? Because then you start anticipating everything that's going to happen. You start anticipating the plot points. You start anticipating the reversals or, you know, like you can... You can almost hear that like sliding flute, you know, during some of the scenes where you're going like, okay, I get it. And it doesn't become as interesting because the best bad movies are the ones that constantly keep you guessing, constantly keep you in a state of I'm confused. Mm -hmm. I don't know why this is happening. And you're constantly being delighted um, by these you know, uh, by, uh, by, by these failures, by these tripfalls, by these strange choices. Yeah. Um, whereas you don't get that experience with movies that are so bad, they're good. And I think if you want to really understand what we're talking about, there's a great documentary called Best Worst Movie. Yes. And that was about the making of Troll 2. Now, Troll 2, for many people, is the Mac Daddy of movies that are so bad they're good people will people you know some people who really love this stuff will argue that ed wood was really one of the first sort of pioneers of so bad they're good movies and they'll reference a movie like plan nine from outer space as being the sort of like best worst movie uh but troll 2 really hits it out of the park because it has so many flavors um in it and best worst movie is a documentary that was written and directed by one of the stars of Troll 2, the child actor in Troll 2, which was made in the 80s, grew up, made this movie in the 2000s. And that's when you realize to what extent the, the, the writer, the director, and the actors all saw this as a major opportunity. Yeah. And they all missed the mark. But the, but it was it was the thing about Troll 2 is that it's competently made, it's competently shot. Mm-hmm. And all the aspects of it that make it a bad movie are 
tropes that you'll see in other really, really bad movies, the more you sort of unpack those layers, yeah. right? So I think I think Pablo and I, one of one of the experiences that we have a lot while watching these movies is was this movie made or written by uh, an alien, like someone who doesn't understand movies, like someone who doesn't understand the English language or yeah. how, you know, and then you go, yeah, sometimes that's exactly what it is. And in the case of Troll 2, it was directed and written by two Italians yeah. who have a tenuous grasp on the English language, yeah. um, who were making B-movies in Italy. And then they decided to make a B-movie um, in in America. Uh, and no one, like the, uh, the original intention for Troll 2, and this has no connection to Troll 1. In fact, officially, there is no Troll 1. Um but um, this was that was renamed after the fact. But Troll Two, its intention was a critique of the trend of vegetarianism in the eighties that was yeah. growing. Yeah. And this was an Italian woman. It was written by a woman who was just like all of her friends were being vegetarian, and she's just like fuck you, you're all just trolls. And so she wrote this movie about these trolls and a witch that that are slowly turning people into plants. Um, so that they can be eaten mm-hmm. by, yeah. Um, and and again, like part of the joy of that comes from, like for 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 example, one of the infamous parts about Troll Two is that there are no trolls in the movie. The only creatures in the movie are always referred to as goblins. Yeah, goblins this, goblins that. The town that this takes place in is Neilbog, which is goblin backwards. And so there's this interesting kind of like, you know, loss in translation where they're going, why is this movie called trolls? There are no trolls. Why are all these goblins? Like what's happening? Why are these, you know, what are all these sayings? What are all these things that, um, or, or, um, sorry to jump ahead and I'm going to let you talk in a second, Pablo, but I'm really, I'm really excited, but there's this great, um, Canon movies, um, which was, so Canon pictures was an American Israeli, um, film company yeah. studio yeah. Uh, that had its heyday in the 80s and was run and founded by two Israelis called Menachem Golam and Golam Globus um, that served on basically producers and they wrote had a hand in the writing of most of their most of the canon pictures and they they brought a lot of their sensibilities their Israeli sensibilities and Israeli culture to some of the movies they were making in America. So for example, and, and again, I can't be super specific because I don't remember the film name, but there's like this moment in one of the early canon movies that they made where someone's in the hospital and then the person shows up with like a pineapple and some socks to, for, to give or something yeah. along those lines, yeah, yeah. Uh, like a bag of lemons or something, you know, it's like a bag of oranges and something else. And they give to that person in the hospital. The person's like, oh, thank you so much. And you're watching this going like, why the fuck yeah. would he bring this person to this sort of disparate like grouping of items? Yeah. And then you realize, no, this is just something that's done in Israel that's not done here uh, that would have made sense with a completely different audience. Yeah. So circling back just for a second there to, to Beth Wars movie, because what's interesting about that, like with the idea of these... Uh, films need to be made in a sincere manner in terms of like everyone understanding that this is for serious, we're going to do a good job, and what makes it interesting or what makes it entertaining is how they fail in their execution. 
So in Best Worst Film, we see, okay, they're doing the film. They complete it. They, they do all the post-production work. And then it releases. And then nothing happens, right? And it's kind of like, oh, this is like a shitty film that no one's going to go watch. And then it gets the cult status because people watch it and they realize like, oh, this is actually gold. Yeah. Uh, it's oh, also a quick thing just before I continue. Uh, it's like bad film or good bad film is like uh, like comedy, right? If you try hard, comedy's not doesn't work, oh, right? That's the perfect analogy, Pablo. You have that's to, the perfect analogy. You have yeah. to play it straight, and that's what makes it funny. It's because you take it serious, and then to the observer, it's funny. But if you're yeah. trying to be like, hey, I'm so funny, you guys, right? No one's no one's going to be entertained or no one's going to find that funny, right? Because it's too, it's too desperate. It's too, like, in your face. Anyways, so just to highlight the sincerity levels here for, for something like Troll 2 and a bunch of other films is that, okay, so the film releases. Nothing happens. And then, like I said, it gets a cult following because people realize, oh, this movie is gold because it has all, like, these crazy moments. There's a particular scene where with the guy with the glasses, I forget his name, one of the girls is like getting eaten by like the goblins. She turned into plant matter, and the guy's like, "Oh my god, they're gonna, they're gonna eat her, and then they're gonna eat me." And he's just like, "Oh my god!" Right? And he just says it just like that, right? Like that kind of flat, <laughs> boring. Like I don't want to actually yell, you know, this terrible acting, terrible delivery kind of thing. And that's usually what you see like on the internet if you if you've only ever seen a clip of Troll Two. That's usually what you've seen. So that's funny, right? Because it's just so like ridiculous. Like, who would react <laughs> like that? That's what makes it work. That's why people liked it. So people would, uh, you know, back in the day, uh, have screen it in theaters. Well, they still do it today too. But you know, that's how it kind of gained like a following. And eventually, I guess it got put out on DVD, and you know, people watched it and stuff. And then so news goes back to Italy that oh, this film's starting to be appreciated now. People are starting to like it. And in the in the documentary, they they talk. I don't know if it was filmed for the documentary specifically, or if it was just like archival footage that they had that they came across. But the director gets contacted, and he's kind of like, "Yes, my vision is finally being understood," right? So, and he's going to a premiere or a screening of the film uh, somewhere in the U.S. I forget where exactly. And he's excited, right? Because he's like, "Yes, finally! Like, I made this. I made this movie. It was misunderstood when it first came out, but people are finally starting to see the light." Because that does happen, right? There's a, a lot of film, a lot of works of art. Initially, uh, they're released and they're not well received, and then only like you know, ten, twenty, fifteen, thirty, fifty years later, do people kind of understand it and appreciate it. So that can happen, right? And that's what this guy thought was happening. And he goes, and you see him. There's a big lineup at the theater. People excited for Troll 2. And the director's walking out along the sidewalk. And he sees the, the, the huge line. And there's a guy that comes up to him. And being like, this is the director of Troll 2. And the, and the people are like, oh, yeah, I love Troll 2. Great film, great. And you know, he's excited. He's like, yes, okay, this is awesome. I'm so happy everyone's packed in here. This is going to be great. This is what I've been waiting for. I've been waiting, I don't know, it's like 20 years later, let's say. I've been waiting 20 years for this moment. And then, you know, you see him inside the theater, uh, you know, the lights go down, the picture starts playing, and then he realizes that, oh no, these people don't like this film because it's a wonderful work of art that's like provocative and has made them think or whatever. <laughs> they like it because they're laughing at it. And you just see like the look of disappointment on his face because he's like, ah, oh, 
this is not this is not what I thought this was how this was going to go down kind of thing. And yeah, and that's what makes the movie work. Like I'm not I'm not saying this to necessarily take pleasure in in the pain that he's feeling, but it's because he was sincere. Like even up until that point, he was like this is a good film. People will like yeah. it one day, right? And that's what makes it good because they were trying to do something great. Yeah. And I here's and I think that's a I think you bring up another really important part because even in that film at first he's offended. At first he's just like, you know what? Fuck these Americans. They don't know a good movie if yeah. it showed up and, you know, you know, shat on their face or whatever. Yeah. Um, fuck it. I'm just going to go back to Italy and I'm still going to make movies or whatever. But then his tone starts to change. Mm. Right. And I think that happens often where he starts to see the amount of people that are enjoying this movie, the amount of people that are going to see this movie that are most importantly paying to go see this movie and all of these movie houses that are paying the license um, to watch it. And this sort of like cult following and the, and the renown that it's sort of getting. And even though it's not the kind of attention that he wanted, his tune starts to change in that documentary. And he starts to say things like, you know what, even if, you know, they're, not laughing at the parts that I designed to be funny and that they're not scared at the parts that are scary. And, you know, basically that they're laughing inappropriately. Um, I think what's most important is that these people are going to see my movie and they're enjoying my movie. And at the end of the day, that's what you want to do. You want to make something that people enjoy. And that pivot happens with movies that are so bad they're good. Right. And I think a good another good example of that is The Room. Yeah. Because when we know for a fact that when Tommy Wiseau started making The Room, it was earnest, it was serious, and he was he wanted to make, um, you know, a rebel without a cause in the 2000s. You know, like that's yeah. that's what he was trying to channel. But then the second the movie started to become famous or infamous, he started to go, oh, no, no, it was a comedy. It's a dark comedy. Meant, it was I meant didn't... to be like that. Yeah, right. I had intended for it to be that. It was intentionally supposed to be bad that everyone was going to watch it. And that's just my kind of humor. And then you're going, bullshit, you know? But, like, he's pivoting because he's going, I don't want to be ridiculed all the, all the time. I oh, want to, yeah. you know? You know? Yeah, it's a uh, way to justify it. Exactly. And I think what's really important, though, um, and, and, and I think it's another point to the sincerity of it and how important the sincerity of it is, is that for many of these movies, they are lightning in a bottle. Yes. Right. They cannot be remade or made twice. It can't be replicated because the second you become self-aware mm-hmm. that you're making a bad movie, then it becomes just a bad movie. So when the and a great example of this, Samurai Cop. Yeah, that's what I was thinking. So too. when Samurai Cop was made, and Samurai Cop is in a uh, with a lot of these so good, so bad they're good movies, is they start to get a following now thanks to the internet. So a clip from the movie goes viral. Yeah. Right. So I think most people will recognize Troll Two from the "Oh my God" yeah. meme. And I think a lot of people will have seen the Ohai Doggy clip from The Room. Yeah. Um, and I think a lot of people in the case of Samurai Cop who will have seen the super weird interaction that the quote unquote 
Samurai Cop has with yeah. a nurse. Yeah. Um, and that that scene went kind of viral on, on yeah. YouTube. And then people start to go, what the hell is this movie? Why I need to watch, there's, there's more of this movie? <laughs> what? And so they go watch it. And then, um, you know, Samurai Cop sort of built up a really a mystique around it, a kind of lore around yeah. it. Because the director was Iranian and he made, a, you know, two other movies that that are that are available that people have seen in one movie that was kind of lost as far as i know um so those are the two other movies are hollywood cop and then killing american style yeah. those are the like the um, the the samurai cop trilogy if if you were to if you you know want to see it that way and so he made these movies and he was make he wanted to make an american action movie he wanted to remake lethal weapon because that's that's a lot of a lot of filmmakers, a good, you know, the filmmakers that we see that are famous in Hollywood are fundamentally they're businessmen and they're going, what's going to make money? This is tried and tested. I'm going to make my own version and we're going to make some cash and it's going to launch my career. Um, and so Samurai Cop comes along as this sort of buddy cop movie with a Japanese twist to it. And of course, everything that can possibly go wrong and be weird and it has goes goes wrong and is weird. And it has all these wonderful flavors and all these great surprises in one movie, which is absolutely wonderful. And it became a success uh, 20 years later, right? It reached this huge cult following. Um, people loved it, uh, had the same kind of vibe as Troll 2 did. But what happened was, is that uh, people's uh, basically as people became interested in making a sequel. Yes. And there was a really successful Kickstarter campaign where they raised hundreds of thousands of dollars. And the danger there was, was like, how do you replicate Samurai Cop 25, 30 years later? Yes. You can't. And, and everyone was worried about that. And that's exactly what happened. Samurai Cop does co comes nowhere near to the glory yeah. that was its predecessor. And, you know, Samurai Cop 2 was made on a much larger budget, had much better resources, had a bunch of the original cast, but they also cast a whole bunch of porn stars for some reason to be in the movie. Yeah. And it was just, it just came off being a, a lame, self-aware parody, uh, a sort of lesser version of Samurai Cop that isn't enjoyable and isn't entertaining really. Um, and is and is that's a, like a demonstrable failure, and I think it highlights the importance of, you know, the 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 sincerity, the intention mm -hmm. behind these movies. Yeah, but even so, even with a good film, it's difficult to make a sequel. Mm -hmm. You know, so that's a challenge that anyone faces trying trying to build on the success of a previous work. Because yeah, a lot of the time it is kind of then and there and that's how it works and yeah. trying to trying to build on it either be kind of becomes like a parody a parody of the previous version or it's the same kind of story again or it just becomes like a disaster because you don't know like what to do with your characters or where to take the story kind of thing mm -hmm. so you're just going to retread old ground yeah. But definitely in the case of where if it's a bad film that kind of gets popular like years later because it gained a cult following to, to make a legit sequel, I think it's like pretty much impossible. I don't think you can yeah. do it because now you know what people like. So you're going to do the things that you know people want to see again.
but in that in that case, it's like just go, let's go watch the original. Well, it's like everybody has everybody has met someone who is eccentric and odd. Yes. And the reason why usually you'll want to hang out with this person and know this person is because they're unpredictable. Yeah. And they're spontaneous, and they'll say or do things that are really catch you off guard and are either delightful or they're extreme or they're hilarious. And you go, man, I love this person. Uh, and then most of the time, these people, they're just being who they are. Yeah. Right. And so it never really becomes uh, a self, an affectation. Yeah. But we've all met those people who are, they're affecting eccentricity, you know, where they'll dress weird and they'll make inappropriate remarks. And those people mostly come off as obnoxious. Yes. And that's what happens with a lot of these movies that are trying to be bad is that they come off as obnoxious. And you're going like, stop wasting my time because you're not, you're missing the point of what is making this entertaining, which is spontaneity, uh, surprise. And, you know, the, and, and here's, here's, here's the other thing. Here's yeah. the other thing that's really tough to replicate is there are very few movies that are so bad they're good that are entertaining 100% of the runtime. Yes. For sure. A lot of these movies have peaks and valleys. Yes. And so the best bad movies are the ones that either have very, very, the time between their peaks, the lows and the highs are very short. Yes. And so you're, you're always kind of entertained or at least, you know, you're not, you're not going like, oh man, this is boring for very long. Or the ones that have very low bottoms that last for a long time, but then peaks that are Himalayan in height yeah and you know that just that just completely you know leave you rolling on the floor laughing um and that's really hard uh to negotiate because sometimes you know sometimes you'll watch a movie and 80 percent of it is borderline unwatchable and then the last just 20 minutes magic moment yeah, yeah the last magic one, sequence that's right. The last they just accidentally do something that's incredible and it redeems yeah. the rest of the movie. Or for some people it doesn't, right? But for some people it's just like this just sucks. <laughs> like like I, guess that's fair. I don't I don't get it. And that's totally fair. Yeah, no, it's definitely cuz like what we said in terms of like the sincerity, but like there has to be obviously the the will has to be sincere, but what makes it work is what you said is like the unpredictability and all that stuff. It's because you generally have people who don't understand filmmaking on a certain level, whether it's storytelling, whether it's like actual framing, whether it's pacing, whether it's in the yeah. editing, right? There's something missing. So it's like poor execution, generally low budget. You know, they don't have the people to do a certain thing. They don't have, uh the materials so either like the sets or access to sets right it's like we got to film in like a park <laughs> or something yeah. or we got to film as they say like in red letter media on best of worst in grandma's house yeah you know kind of thing right. it's just like we just need things but these are things that are common especially if you're uh just starting out or whatever or if you're making your first film generally yeah you have to rely on like okay people you know where you can film or people lending you stuff whatever you can get your hands on right so it's not that you can't 
create a good film under these circumstances is just exponentially harder. And if you're yes. someone who doesn't have the experience, especially in storytelling, because a lot of these films, you're talking about it being boring. A lot of it's boring is because you don't know what the hell is going on. Like, why <laughs> Why is our character doing whatever it is he's doing? Yeah. Like, he's, like, put in a, in, in, in a situation. You're like, why is this... Why is this happening? How do yeah. they know? Like they have a lot of it involves like mystery or like solving a murder or like they're fighting against yeah. someone and they know where to find the villain. You're like, how did he know to show up here? Like, how yeah. <laughs> like there's a disconnect, like something's missing. Yeah. Right. Cause like and, and, I, what I imagine is in the head of whoever's the storyteller, whoever's like the writer or the director, whoever, they know the story, right? They yeah. know the sequence of events that's going on. No, no. We don't John, know. John. Yeah. John, he come, he have gone. Uh, he go to bad guy's house and he confronts him and he shoots him and gets the girl go home. They make love and then you're going That's like, yeah, yeah, but what about the between? The yeah, A and B? I, I like, do that. Yeah. Um, yeah. Or 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 things are edited out of sequence. Yeah. Right. Because the you know the production woes sometimes it's just production woes and things get lost or things get put in the wrong order and then somehow. The final cut has these sequences that aren't properly mixed, or especially sound back in that the day when they're shooting yeah. on like film or video, most likely video because it's low yeah. budget. But yeah, so yeah. they're dealing with physical media, and uh, or or you know things were like exactly as you said. Like sometimes, a lot of the times they'll have that kind of. It gets to a point where it's starting to get uh, boring, which is like oh they're shooting in a forest or a or a park, you know, like a um, a national park where you don't need a permit to film and you're going to be alone or you're shooting at grandma's house, right? Because when you're a poor filmmaker, you don't actually own a home, but right. grandma does. So you go over to her house and it looks like a 1950s time capsule because it hasn't been renovated. Yeah. And then you're going like, why are these slick gangsters <laughs> having a meeting, you know, at, on grandma's kitchen table with doilies and, you know, big like disney world cups like yeah. what's happening or one of my favorite ones and this you see in a lot of the samurai cop in the samurai cop trilogy is though these gangsters will go to rob a place and it's a lot filled with ice cream trucks <laughs> it's just a lot with like 70 ice cream trucks and in the middle of nowhere and then yeah. they go inside the building and there's a burlap sack full of cash and then you're watching this movie going, well, what? Why are why are there ice cream trucks yeah. everywhere? Why are they here? Why is the money in a burlap sack? Like, who are these people? Why did why does this ice cream truck rental agency have so much money in cash? And that's that's the joy of it, right? Yeah. That's the the sort of incongruity of it. Or, you know, you're 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 watching these movies. Sometimes they feel like a fever dream. Right. Yeah. And so most Neil Breen movies or one of my personal favorites, which is a Canadian movie called Things, yeah. where it's a really simple, really, um, you know, um, cliched uh, story where it's a bunch of guys cabin in the woods and there are things, there are creatures that are trying to kill them. And but of course, uh, the sound and the film isn't synced properly. And so uh, it was, it was, or I, I think actually, I think it was overdubbed after. Yeah. Um, and so the sinking is never right. And, you know, like Mark comes into the house and puts his winter coat in the fridge and takes out a tape recorder from the fridge. And you're going, why is this happening? I don't understand. And 
but the filmmakers somehow thought that this was appropriate and that this worked somehow because uh, they're like, oh, well, he has to take his coat off in the scene and there's no coat rack in the kitchen. So why does he just put it away in the fridge and that way we don't have to think about it or, you know, you don't know what's going through their mind. And that becomes this wonderful mystery that you get to solve in your head. Yeah, exactly. It's like something that can't like be explained there. It's just like they kind of just roll with it. Yes. They just roll with it. It doesn't matter. So it doesn't That's have right. to make sense in terms of like or, logic. And limited resources. Yeah. We don't have time. We yeah. don't have budget to do this over We're here. here for You're getting, two hours. Yeah. Like we gotta You're getting get one something. take. Yeah. Yeah. And and for the for the ice cream truck lot, like obviously the director, Amir Shervan, had a relative or knew a guy yeah. who had a lot that either repaired ice cream trucks or rented out or stored ice cream trucks. And they're like, hey, can I film here? And he was like, okay. And so he showed up on a weekend and shot an action scene in for his movie there, you know? And these are the wonderful accidents that make these movies special. And those are the kinds of details that you can't do intentionally, yeah. you know, that that the, they're coming out organically. Yeah. And I think that's what people respond to, right? So it's like when a character comes in and does something outrageous without meaning to be outrageous and makes it so much funnier mm -hmm. because you're 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 not looking at someone trying to do anything other than just do either what he was told by a director or what he thinks is natural yeah right but when you're aware that someone is self-aware again it becomes you know like that 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 obnoxious factor it becomes uninteresting because you're going i get it you're trying to make a joke Whereas when no one in it is in on the joke and there's no real joke to, to, to speak of and yeah. it's all unintentional, all the humor is unintentional, then it becomes really, really enjoyable. It, com it becomes really, really entertaining. And it's not necessarily mean-spirited. I think that's, that's something else that you have to keep in mind because I think a lot of people would critique this kind of uh, hobby or subculture as being mean-spirited as you're laughing at these, these movies. Mm -hmm. And... No, like, again, that's missing the point because the laughter, part of it is that sort of that it comes from a place of delight and admiration where you're going like these people tried so hard mm -hmm. to make something and they failed so spectacularly and accidentally made something that's worth watching. Mm -hmm. And that is incredible. I love that because it's in rare cases because most of these movies are made for no budget with unknowns and you never get to hear the behind the scenes story. Yep. And so movies like troll two and the room and samurai cop, where there are people that are alive and there are people that aren't scared to talk about it, you know, mm -hmm. uh, either because they have, they've went on to, you know, do other things as actors and they, they're like, I don't want to be associated to this anymore. Or, you know, they're like, they become ministers at their local church and they don't want to be associated with the like the 80s titty exploitation movie that yeah. they did. And they're like, no, thank you. Um, is they talk about it and they realize like they were working 18 hour days on this movie and getting paid peanuts because either they wanted the opportunity, they needed the opportunity or they believed in the movie yeah. and they wanted to make this work. And it's in that attempt it's in that 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 desire to make something genuinely good that even if um, it, they've missed the mark, it is redeemed by those efforts.
because it's through those efforts that you get those wonderful nuggets of gold. So like I said, we'll end it there. So thank you once again, Christian. Thank you. For uh, being on and having a little chat about good, bad film. So hopefully you, the listener, now have some idea as to what makes good, uh, sorry, what makes bad film good and what makes it enjoyable. A little look into that, what goes into it, some of the players around it, some of the things to look out for. So with that, just before we end the episode, we'll go quickly into our non-legal legal disclaimer. So basically what we've shared today are our opinions on things and of course feel free to disagree with us perhaps you think all bad films are bad and they can't be enjoyable at all and at at any point which is fine if you think uh something like the room is just terrible and no one should watch it that's fair uh but yeah i've been your podcast person pavlo also known as jpav also known as pav also known as pavi and like i said with me was christian for today thank you for listening once again peace